Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my best friend, Sebastian Kaplan, from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, Seb. Hello there, Glenn. How's it going over there? Yeah, it's it's dark here tonight. Tonight, we had the opportunity to speak across quite a few time zones. We were speaking with Sarah Nico in Alaska, which I believe was about nine hours behind me. Four yeah. hours before me, yeah. yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Nine hours. Yeah. Before we talk a wee bit more about our conversation with Sarah, can you just share with people uh, our social media and how they can stay in touch? Yeah, sure. So uh, Facebook is Talking to Change. And on Twitter, or I guess X as it's now known, it's at Change Talking. And on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast at Instagram. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that reminder, yeah. Glenn. Yeah. And uh, and for direct communication with us, uh, f- with ideas about episodes, we've been getting some great ones lately, questions about episodes, questions about something that's mentioned in an episode, or any questions about trainings, of course, uh, you can reach us at podcast at glennhines.com. So back to the show again. So like I mentioned, we were talking to Dr. Sarah Nico, who is a doctor by trade, but is now working in education in Juneau, Alaska, and she's just a newly minted TNT trainer, a new minty trainer, so somebody who's just gone through the process of being trained by the Motivational Network of Trainers, and we just wanted to chat with her about that experience, but also very importantly about what it is that she's doing in Alaska with the indigenous population and how MI fits into that. So I'm wondering, Seb, what, what, what did you take away from the episode? Well, uh, there's a lot of really great ideas that she shared about MI and in the context of the really quite unique context that she's worked in. One of the things that, that I found quite interesting was she had some really great metaphors throughout the conversation. There was this one metaphor that really stood out was describing the process of change on a highway versus a bumpy road. And mm-hmm. then kind of weaved through or woven throughout that was uh, some discussion about the you know myelinization of neural pathways. It was it was really a creative use of metaphor layered with um, a heavy dose of physiology, I suppose. So that was really interesting. And then another one, you know, hope is something that kind of ran throughout. You know, her coming back to to this concept of hope and how it fits in with her day to day life now. And 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 she was really open with us about this journey of hers, which began. Uh, from a place, at least her story with regards to MI came from a place of being burned out professionally and how difficult that was for her and, and how she came from that pretty dark place, quite literally probably working in rural Alaska, to a place of, of hopefulness where she was re-energized and found herself reconnected to the people that she was working with and connected to a culture or probably a, a number of cultures actually embedded in that part of the world, quite different from her own and, and just, just how much hope was a part of that whole process for her. Yeah, and, and alongside of that was the, the way it was connected to her experience of being introduced to Motivation and Viewing. The curtains were open for her, that the hope streamed through the, the, the curtains when she discovered Motivation Interviewing and that, that opened her up to, to learning it. And, and just that, for me, that just the embodiment of the optimism that she now presents, the hope, and the recognizing that the relationship is the vehicle that facilitates change for an individual or a community or a, 
a wider group that we as practitioners, while practicing the being of motivational viewing, that there's where the magic is. And she talked a bit about that, about you know what it is she's discovering or what it is she's learning from the indigenous populations and their reconnection with their own heritage, the reconnection with their own language and and what it is that the language communicates for them. And we related that back to the episode we had with Tiffany and been told, you're not going to learn it, you're just going to remember it. And just that idea of how does that then manifest. There's so much in, in the episode that I'm sure will tweak a lot of people's interest. Absolutely. Uh, we, we certainly hope so, as we were playing around with that word hope, which was uh, so much embedded throughout the conversation. So off to the episode. Well, sir, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. As we do with all our guests, maybe just tell us a bit about yourself and your journey into MI. Yeah. Hey, Glenn and Seb. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, You know, my journey to MI, I have been practicing medicine for about 10 years and really was reaching professional burnout. I just wasn't seeing the kind of changes that I thought I would with my my patients. And it probably was a lot to do with me, um, but it just, it wasn't as fulfilling. And I found myself dreading going to work and wanting to leave early and just being pretty detached. And I happened to stumble upon motivational interviewing just by chance. And once I learned how to really connect with my patients, I was no longer afraid to be with them. You know, I used to fear, oh my gosh, please don't tell me you, you know, you need narcotics or please don't talk about weight loss that you haven't been successful. I was just, I was, I wasn't afraid to be with people anymore. It actually was empowering and encouraging. And after I learned MI, it took me from this place of possible burnout to a place of just empowerment. And I really started to enjoy my job, but more importantly, enjoy those people that I was with. You know, that connection with burnout or I guess the use of MI as a means for burnout prevention, it's something that countless people that are certainly a part of our training organization will refer to. And although I've not seen any research to support it, there's so many of us who have felt it. It's certainly not to suggest we need research to like prove something that we all kind of have experienced and kind of know exists there. But just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to in a bit more detail about how you feel like MI has contributed to the reduction of or even the cure, I suppose, of, of burnout for you. I was really able to connect with people and a much more deeply and meaningful way. You know, before it was as me imparting my knowledge, right? And, and asking them to maybe change or to take this on themselves. But what happened is I just was able to connect with people. And so without even trying, it became seamless. They felt heard. I felt encouraged. They felt hope, you know? So it was just kind of the synergy that when I acknowledged the hope inside of me and I, you know, found it inside of them, we had kind of this common shared humanity. So it was recognizing it in me, acknowledging it in them, and going, we got this and we have a pathway to do it. And it was just a release. It was like this burden was lifted off of me where I didn't have to control the outcome. I could just be there in the present moment with somebody and just be curious. And that was just such a relief. And I think for them too, because I'm sure my patients could feel this nervous energy inside of me of, of wanting them to change and then probably walking away feeling pretty discouraged or disappointed, you know, when things didn't happen or feeling maybe even judged when they came back in unintentionally. Like that wasn't the atmosphere I was trying to create, but there was just a softening of, I would say, my spirit and hope that really it was palpable. And I really do believe that nervous systems can co-regulate. And so when I found my peace and I was just 
I was there and I was present. Like, what do you got? I'm here to listen and accept it. That my nervous system being regulated allowed theirs to regulate and we co-regulated together. And so I started then to see changes in people. And that was just even more empowering. And even though there might've been setbacks, it was knowing like there was always hope right? So we can do this. I believe in you and um, we're going to get through this. And so it really did. It just gave me a joy that had been missing. And I did go to a workshop called Transforming Burnout. And I remember hearing uh, one of the speakers talk about going to see a shaman. It was a physician who had just reached burnout and they so clearly described what I was experiencing at the time. I had a waiting room full of people. I had charts stacked 12 high. I had labs to review. And I remember looking out the window going, I'm just going to (laughs) leave. You know, and unfortunately I was at that place. Like I understood that feeling of I just can't go on. And so they went to see a shaman and the shaman just looks at him without even hearing the story and says, you've lost your spirit. I'll help you find that back. I remember hearing this. And as I was getting into motivational interviewing, thinking, yeah, I need the spirit. And so I started to learn more and more about just the spirit, the partnership, the acceptance, the compassion. At that time, it was evocation. Now it's encouragement or empowerment. Excuse me. It's empowerment. And I remember thinking, this makes so much sense. And as I started practicing that and really embodying that as much as I could with everybody, everybody I talked to, I was reflecting with just trying to get this art of reflection down. I start to feel like there's my spirit. There's Sarah again. This is really why you went into this. And so it does, it did. It just, it it created just a lightness that I am still trying to embrace as much as I can. Mm. And empowerment is very, very evident in what you're describing. And that, that sounds like that the way you became a helper was in you. But the, mm-hmm. the journey to be in that helper somewhere along the line, that way got interrupted. And it, mm-hmm. it felt, it's, from what you're describing, it, it felt like you began to feel responsible for mm-hmm. individuals and their healing and their journeys. And that's fine at the beginning when there's only a few of them. But after years and years and years of carrying the, all of this responsibility, it sounds like you can just get full up. And I'm, I'm no doubt that there are people listening to this today recognizing that they're full up they feel heavy they feel restricted mm-hmm. and it's it sounds like you're offering the insight to say look it's going back to being yourself mm-hmm. that helps mm-hmm. people to be themselves with you that it's back to the the theory of collaboration and it's mm-hmm. not just an idea that it's actually a relational decision that we can make and it sounds like motivational interviewing had the key to open that door for you to step back towards yourself again um, what was it in particular about what it was that you experienced or heard or read that was that light bulb moment for you? You went, ah, I got it. I know what it is. It was really doing the the self-reflection and looking at how that might that happens in my own life with my own behavior changes. You know, I'm I'm still one that's trying to to grow and learn myself. And so what I realized with behavior change, I mean, we all know it's hard, but we're really either pushed by fear, anger, shame, or guilt over pulled by hope or love and being pulled by hope or love really does generate our highest success and our happiness because breaking through years of habits is really hard and it requires a really significant shift in our, our mindset and our heart. And so 
you know, all habits are essentially neural pathways, right? They're bundles of neurons that have learned to communicate on this well-maintained super highway. And this is largely because of something called myelin, uh, which is this fatty protein sheath that covers our nerves and it helps send these impulses like really fast and helps our, our neurons communicate. But they get thicker and thicker as we have, you know, practice skills or do behaviors. And, you know, the more that myelination occurs, the smoother and the more natural those behaviors become. So we really have these super highways in our brains that are really smooth and fast. It's like being on the Autobahn of behavior change, right? Like we're just going. And when we first start a new behavior, it's just this bumpy dirt backcountry road. I mean, we could be drag racing the fastest Corvette out there, but it doesn't really stand a chance against a Toyota on the Autobahn. And so what I found is that with myself and with my patients, you know, with agency and pathways, we can intentionally neglect that superhighway and build up our dirt road. So over time, that that highway, it's, it's neglected and it decays and it might even be filled with potholes itself. And we just don't use it anymore. Um, and at the same time, time we use our dirt road, the more we use it, it becomes smoother and more easier to travel. So we have the power to help others learn to command their heart and their mind to connect and kind of redirect this process. We can't ignore the mind chatter, chatter, but we can, you know, learn to hear it better and understand it and redirect it and bring attention to those things and personalize them and deepen our understanding of why we want them. And then after that, we can create agency and pathway for change you know, to help people or myself build this idea of hope and embody it for others. Great example of sort of considering our own experience as a way to connect with someone else's experience and, and see how kind of MI helps unlock that. Also, just a fantastic metaphor plus refresher on the myelinization <laughs> process. That, that was just wonderful. So thank you for that. Sarah, just wondered if you could offer a uh, snapshot of where you are and maybe a bit of a story of how you got there. You were sharing that with me before we press record. And, and it's just a really cool story. I think the audience would love to hear it. Oh, thank you, Zeb. Yeah, so my husband and I moved to Alaska 13 years ago. Actually, we had just gotten married, so we were newlyweds. And he found this job that was, you know, had this great marketing that said, do you want to go out and practice medicine in rural Alaska, the last frontier? You know, very exciting. And and me always wanting to be Dr. Quinn medicine woman and live kind of that, that lifestyle, I thought, this is perfect. So we moved to a rural part of Alaska, and it was um, in a very traditional cultural um, part of Alaska and it was beautiful. And, you know, we didn't have a car. I would cross country ski to work. There was few roads. And if there were roads, the only machines on there were snow machines or four wheelers. And we would fly into Anchorage every three months to get groceries. And it was just living this very simple life, but it was also very hard. And, you know, I learned so much about myself and just the ideas that I had brought. I thought, oh, I'm the medical provider. I'm going to come in and help all these people. But what I didn't realize is that there was significant historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, and I represented something, you know, like colonization. And so it was really hard for us to become integrated. It took a lot of time and I had to build trust. But about a year and a half or so in to the assignment, I, I remember first being invited to sit at one of the elders' tables at one of the potlatches. And it was just such a moment of feeling accepted and honestly bringing hope that I can and, you know, connect with people that are so different than myself. So that was very interesting, even just that, that ability to recognize that 
this population that you were going to help, their view of you was very different from your view of yourself, that you actually represented the very thing that had caused them the pain. And mm-hmm. I guess that that's, that in itself is a potentially very helpful thing for us to, as practitioners to consider is not who do we want to be, but who are the clients that we're helping seeing us as? Mm-hmm. And do we represent Inverticam as the man in any way? Mm-hmm. And how do we then go about acknowledging that truth and then begin to develop a relationship? And I'm wondering, how did you do that? What was it you were doing or what was it you noticed that you needed to do for the the, the people that you were there to help to then welcome you into their community? I made so many mistakes. <laughs> and have I, and had I have, if I had the opportunity to go back and do it again, I would do things very differently. But then again, I might not have had that realization I have now. So the first thing is just the humility, the cultural humility. I should have read books about the historical traumas and the impacts of colonization on the people group that I was serving. That was the first mistake. You know, I've done a lot of international travel and Ever since then, any time that I go on an international medical trip, I always read a book about that country and its people. And I maintain this level of curiosity. I go in with humility. Teach me. Show me what's working for you. Not what's wrong with you, but looking at, yes, what happened to you, but what's right with you? Why are you still here? Where are these protective factors of resiliency that have kept you here? And I think that the Alaska Natives are a perfect example of that for several reasons. Um, There are several factors that have been at play for many, many years, you know, significant loss of their population. 90% of them were wiped out with smallpox, the loss of their culture, the historical intergenerational traumas, um, the high risk of suicide, mental health and substance use disorders. The first victory is that despite boarding schools and forced assimilation and colonization, they are still here and they still stand proud and carry this wisdom and as knowledge bearers really amongst their people. And there are two really important strategies that have contributed to this. They are resilient and they hold strong to those values of community and connection to their ancestors, to their land and to each other. Second, they continue to hold these values and they pass them down through their stories and their language and their arts. And with the absence of just one of these, their way of life might not have continued. It might have, you know, gone away. And so there are also, you know, these pathways that are present with tribal organizations and colleges like the one I work for, who are really trying to record this knowledge, revitalize the language and make these cultural traditions both visible and accessible. So holding potlatches, drumming circles, traditional healing centers. In Sitka, you know, we have a totem park. We have, we feature carvers. We feature the Northwest Coastal Arts and Designs. You know, at the university I work for, we have courses on Alaska Native um, coastal arts. So weaving, plant medicine, sustainable practices. So um, I did have a guest speaker a couple of weeks ago who came in and told the story of her father who did go to a boarding school. And as he aged and as an adult, one day she was watching him paint a garage and he stopped and she's observing from afar and he just starts to weep. So she walks over and says, you know, Papa, what's wrong? And he says, I don't remember my language. And she you know, knowing how important that was in her culture, went to school, started learning the language again, and then taught her father. And I remember her sharing, 
our language will heal us. So there's something about, you know, connecting to this, this energy of language and being able to pass down traditions in your own native tongue that brings about healing. And so there's, you know, in Alaska natives here, the belief they have this belief that the future will be better than the present and that they have the belief that they have the power to make it so. So there really is a lot of hope. And there's been studies, you know, looking at hope and how that's associated with post-traumatic growth. And that's important to keep in mind because recovery emerges from hope because having hope is holding on to that possibility that things can change or they could be different and that it isn't over. And that frame of thinking is really what causes us to become resilient and to bounce back and to learn from experiences. People, you know, resilient people don't just ignore or suppress difficult emotions. Alaska natives, you know, just ignore what happened to them, but they can process them. They can learn from them. They can take those those lessons to the next phase of their life. Um, in other words, they hope. And I, I really do believe the skills of MI can be used to help nurture this hope as a gift and an opportunity to live that hope out. So my own understanding is that because I've been trained in a skill of MI, perhaps I can use that as a gift and an opportunity to help others live out that hope. And it's really important here in Alaska. Yeah, you you describe this professional transformation, I suppose, from working in this really what seems like a isolated village, uh, you know, far from cars and shopping centers and things like that to a situation now or an environment now where you're at a university and and even the things you're studying are about communities and cultures and there are much, much more breadth to them. I'm thinking back to those, if I, if we can, just just some of those earlier days of, of you practicing medicine. I imagine coming from a, you know, from a Western tradition. I I don't know. You you said you grew up in Michigan and I assume the med school that you went to was a traditional Western type of training. Maybe I'm wrong. I just, just an assumption there, but, and now you're kind of plopped into this really rural and, you know, fully kind of immersive experience where you're, you're really an outsider here. And I imagine some of the medical traditions that the community that you were working in had or held were quite a bit different than what you were bringing to them. And, you know, I, I don't, Perhaps MI wasn't a part of that process, but maybe if you could speak a little bit to that and maybe how MI helped facilitate the, I don't know what the right word would be, if it was a blending of approaches or merging or adopting or whatever it might be, but just how you, how you ultimately kind of evolved your practice as you became more fully immersed with them. A lot of it just went back to the spirit, you know, just really trying to embody the best of what I think motivational interviewing offers is just first and foremost, just embodying that spirit. So the partnership, you know, and with that came the the humility and the curiosity of what would a partnership look like for us that wouldn't that where I wouldn't be seen as threatening or unsafe because so much of, you know, what they had experienced with colonization was this threat of losing their culture, their heritage, their language, their arts, you know, that spirit that they had. So what would a partnership even look like? 
And sometimes even asking it that way, like how, how can I help you? Or what role does culture play in your healing? And just letting them share, you know, what this would look like for them. Imagine yourself fully immersed back in that culture. Some people have become detached. So what would fully immersing in your culture look like? So just that partnership, that acceptance that whatever they say is perfect for them. I don't know. And so you're right, Zab, that there are, you know, I might be quick to prescribe medications where in reality they need to connect back with their ancestors or the land or their community or those values that they have. That's what's going to heal them. I'm not going to give them a med to heal them per se as much as embodying that hope and connection to what they hold as sacred. That's what's going to make those changes. And so I think it's just going back to that, that spirit, the, the partnership, acceptance, compassion, and the empowerment. Again, beautiful, all that you're describing there, Sarah, because when you were describing there what it was that, that you had learned from that population that you were with, I was translating it into my own words, and it was like, first of all, know your service population. Mm-hmm. So as a practitioner, know who you're helping. Mm-hmm. Find out about them. Be open to learning from the patient. Mm-hmm. How did they survive this long, and how did you get here? Mm-hmm. Keep open and curious. Recognize mm-hmm. people will be themselves without your permission. <laughs> They're going to get on with being themselves under whatever environment. They, they'll be themselves despite what it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And can you expand yourself to recognize and understand the world from their perspective with value and curiosity? And yeah. what was beautiful about what you said about the language, remind us we, we had a, a conversation a few episodes back with Tumbany Pickett from, from the Maori background in New Zealand, and he, he, he described something similar. He says he realised that he wanted to reconnect with his own background, and he went to see one of the elders, and he says, I want to learn my language, and the, the elder says, him, you don't need to learn, you just need to remember it. Mm. And it was mm-hmm. just that, that power of the who you are, that cultural identity, that and all of the magic of that is in you, and all we're going to do is help you refine it. And in many ways, that that in itself is the essence of so much of what it is we're taught in the spirit of MMA. Everything that this person's going to be is already in them. Mm-hmm. All the potential of who they can become is already in them, and you're just mm-hmm. going to come alongside them with their permission and create the environment where the growth is going to come from inside. And it is that you bring in the hope, Mm-hmm. that can light that fire and it, it's mm-hmm. in the relationship that the healing becomes possible mm-hmm. yeah I love the way you said that I mean it is so true and that's what's hopeful for me to to heal these bridges that have been burned you know to come together and as, a, as one common humanity that you know I can again I can recognize the hope in me that the change is possible in myself in our world and you and acknowledge that and and give that life so by filling ourselves with the spirit of MI we really do embody hope for others sometimes when they're unable to see it within themselves there are a lot of people not just the indigenous people that I've worked with certainly there but in almost anybody you know you could find any people group where we forget that natural reserve we have inside that hope is just kind of covered and so i like to think of it as i can embody the hope if i really truly believe in the spirit of mi and what it stands for that i can embody that for others when they're not able to see it themselves or maybe they haven't realized that they have this power there's hope inside of them and so we can kind of carry it for them until they can rediscover it and discover the possibilities that believing that and what hope brings in its fullest sense 
And because of this, every problem uh, can be convert converted into a gift and an opportunity. And so that really helped me when I was feeling burnt out. It was this idea that, okay, Sarah, just really embody this, embody what you believe with the partnership, acceptance, compassion, and empowerment. And that is all you need to be a gift and provide an opportunity for your patients. It's a gift of hope from me to them. And then a gift of hope that they give to themselves and that opportunity to live it out. And so in that framework, it kind of, it's like transcultural. (laughs) It can cross any cultural. I don't have to be the expert in your life, but you can share it with me, but I can help stoke that fire. I really think that hope is like the flint of the heart. You know, there's little puddles of gasoline in all of us. It's just finding that right way to like stoke that flint. Like I'm just going to create a spark and I'm going to watch it burn and burn in a way that I will help you find those pathways that work for you be it your culture, be it your language, be whatever it is, those pathways that keep that fire going. We're just stoking it together, but I can release it and say, you tell me what sticks are going to go into that fire. You help me know how to stoke that flint to get those sparks arise. I kind of want to let Glenn respond to the, to the whole idea of hope being the flint of the heart. Cause uh, I, I could, I've known Glenn long enough to see the a light in his eye with that one. That was that was really beautiful. Um, it really do you want to gorgeous? Yeah, absolutely beautiful. And even that idea of the puddles of of gasoline in each <laughs> each one of us. And then yeah. you and you saying, look, what what do you want to put on this fire? Mm-hmm. It's just it's just that collaboration, that willingness to come alongside someone, and mm-hmm. have faith in them mm-hmm. enough to go. I can help, and then shut up and yeah. listen. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that embodiment is different than practicing a skiller technique. And I think that's a, a good point that you had kind of brought up. You know, you can practice the piano to become better, but you don't live like a piano. You know, embodiment is alive and it's something that I feel and you sense. And that's awesome. Like when I start to embody these things, I don't have to do anything else. Like your nervous system is picking up the cues of safety and regulation from mine. It's like this, this three feet of energy that's just going back and forth. You know, I'm a, I'm a practitioner of something called heart math, which really looks at, you know, the energetic, you know, field of the heart. And it sounds real woo woo, but there's a lot of science behind it that, you know, and we know this because we, we check our heart, you know, with something called an EKG. It just looks at the electric circuit, electrical circuitry of the heart. And so what we know is that this electrical circuitry actually radiates three feet around us. So literally when someone's in your personal space, they probably are like, it's too close. But the same thing goes is that when I create uh, you know, and I embody this sense of hope and the partnership and acceptance and compassion, your nervous system is picking that up. We're always scanning our environment for cues of safety and danger. So when I embody hope, it's safe. It's saying, I accept you where you are for who you are. Let's go. And a skill like ORs or open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries, that isn't alive. The person delivering them is, and the person receiving them is. So, you know, this is where change then becomes alive too, because it's a dynamic process of living out that hope. We embody the hope and let it integrate into that living process of change by infusing it with our words and that spirit of partnership, acceptance, compassion, and empowerment. I guess I'm going to perhaps a more practical place. So this idea of hope, right? That's clearly something that runs 
through and through the work that you do. It's a concept that seems like it's really front of mind for you and front of heart, I suppose we should say as well. And um, I can imagine if there are people out there listening who are practitioners and are interested in the idea of hope, they've learned about hope, they, they might try to figure out how to increase it or give people hope. And, and it's kind of more often how you hear it. Um, they may be wondering like, all right, well, how do I, how do I do this differently or better? How could MI inform that process? And besides just becoming like you and all that you've embodied and learned over the years, like what are, what would you say to somebody who's trying to kind of do that better, I guess, for lack of a better term, like what, what they might do, what they might not do as a way to embody and to give or instill or draw hope out, however you might frame it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for my personal journey and everyone's going to do what's best for them or discover their own, you know, their own strengths. Uh, for me, it really was coming back to analyzing or reflecting on where I am and I needed hope. And those, those moments when I was at the precipice of burnout, I needed hope. I needed something. And so when I stumbled upon MI, it was just, what does partnership mean and look like for me? How do I become a partner to myself again before I can be a partner to my, my patients? What does acceptance look like? What is compassion, self-compassion? You know, what does even empowerment look like? And so it really was going back to those core principles and looking at myself and saying, how would I live this out? And then being able to like radiate that forward. Hope really is created in these moment to moment, you know, at times it's the deliberate choices that we make. And it happens, you know, certainly when we use the skills of MI to kind of temper ambivalence and, and to help decrease the fears associated with change. Um, it helped, you know, it's, people rediscovering who they are and then actively, sounds cliche, but actively pursuing that greatest vision of themselves. When I feel accepted as I am, I can change. When, you know, I accept somebody else as they are, they then hold that possibility of that they can change. And when we share hope together, we feel empowered. So sometimes it's just asking open-ended questions, you know, to really get this in your mind, like what's happening. So to cultivate hope, you could, you know, ask open-ended questions of yourself or your, your client. Like when you think about yourself and your greatest health, what does it look like? You know, what does it feel like? What's possible in your life? You know, just getting them to think and create stickiness in different parts of their brain, you know, their, their visual cortex, you know, their feelings, their, their thoughts, like really kind of creating a vision inside that they can even start to entertain this possibility of hope. What past successes or experiences could you draw on to help you with this change? Right. So when we start talking about those successes, I'm kind of creating this idea that there is hope. I've done this before. What do you know about yourself that you, you know, could be successful or could help you in this change? Well, I know I'm a hard worker. I know that I've, you know, I've, I've done this before. I know that I have integrity. Like those are, that's hope talk. You know, we, we, we think in terms of change talk, but the desires, the abilities, the reasons, the needs, that's all hope talk. That's all thinking about the possibility that hope exists, that I could even pursue this. So I think that the ORS skills are a great way to start fostering this if it's in, you know, covered by the spirit of MI, you know, what's possible in your life? How has hope showed up before? Uh, those are just things that I, I would ask to get people thinking and actually look at things more optimistically. And it doesn't mean you have to be positive. Like an optimistic person isn't someone who's happy all the time. It's someone that sees this time as temporary, 
Like, okay, this too shall pass. So an optimist says this will pass, but I have hope for the possibility and that future that I see, I feel, and I envision out there. It's just creating a different narrative in our mind because our minds are sneaky. (laughs) You know, we have these inner critics, these soothsayers that are filled with shame and guilt and judgment and blame. It's just changing that narrative of how they see themselves and the possibilities that exist. Okay, so the fourth edition has just come out and already there's, there's a memo being sent that there's a new category called Hope Talk and that uh, <laughs> that, that Bill and Steve immediately need to start writing the next edition. That's a, that's a beautiful way of describing that preparatory change talk as we understand it at the moment. It's that Hope Talk and just the significance of it is, is that when I'm talking about my desire or my building or my mm-hmm. reasons or my needs, that there has to be a future. Yeah, I have to recognize there is a future. The fact that I'm even wanting it to be different means that there is a space in front of me that I want to step into. And it sounds like what you're doing is you're just inviting people to amplify that in whatever way you can, whether it's using visual open-ended questions or emotional open-ended questions. But it's just inviting people to hear themselves talk about it in more detail. The more they can hear themselves use it, the the sharper the picture might be for them. Mm -hmm. And the more clarity they have, chances are that the easier it is for them to begin to work out, well, how do I get there from here? And mm-hmm. then they can begin to decide how to make the commitments that are necessary. Mm-hmm. So that that's beautiful. And, and so hope is such an important part of it. And you've referenced it quite a few times. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I know that before we came on, that was one of the things that you were describing about what you were noticing about the Indigenous people that you were working with and mm-hmm. their, their own use of language. And I wonder, could you talk mm-hmm. a wee bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's you know, sometimes when I would walk around like the streets of Juneau or even when I was living out in rural Alaska, there's this sense of hopelessness, you know, and what's the number one, you know, one of the main predictors of suicide risk factors is hopelessness. So hope is, it's really important. Um, and if you look at the definition of hope, it's, it's really this capacity to identify strategies and pathways to achieve a goal and the motivation or the agency to effectively pursue it. And that all comes from an American psychologist named Rick Schneider um, at the University of Kansas, who uh, has written on the hope theory, you know, that there are kind of three main things that make up hopeful thinking. It's goals and, you know, approaching life in a goal-oriented way, pathways, you know, finding ways to achieve our goals and this agency, this belief that we have the power to make these changes, which is all am I. So in terms of Indigenous people, you know, language is a pathway for them to rediscover the heritage, the energy, the the stories, the culture behind, you know, who they are, that identity. So it's just another way for them to rediscover their identity in a way that's really meaningful. You know, the fact that the story I told earlier, the man was, the father was brought to tears. He wept because he couldn't remember his language. There's something so powerful in this art of communication and language just holds a key. So what we're seeing here is this revitalization of this culture, this language, um, the arts, and it is, it's giving people a pathway to, you know, heal. And I, I think that's really beautiful because real hope is more than just a feeling it's it's a strategy and it's an essential life skill and we often don't speak of hope that way but you know 
people like Schneider, they did. And they actually made it their life's work to say that this is a strategy that we can use and a really essential life skill. And so, yeah, going back to the the darn cast, which is hope talk, our desires, our abilities, our reasons, our needs, you know, that's our why. And it, it's what makes us come alive. Language makes us come alive. You know, we, we do, we call it change talk, but I really believe it's actually it's hope talk um, that we're hearing from people and why it's important. It, it, it ignites that fire. It could be that one strike of that flint that's, you know, evoking that little spark so that change is, is possible. And I see that. I see that with my students who are learning Klinget or, you know, some other Yupik, some other native languages. You see there's like a, a spark that's happening that because I'm able to now communicate with my elders or my family or I'm connecting to something deeper inside of myself, it's, it's the hope. And so I think, you know, planting that seed of hope and helping people discover it in a way that's unique to them is such an important, important thing. And I, I'd love to hear a bit more of the kind of the day-to-day work that you are doing now as someone who came from this rural medical setting to now in a university setting, you have students that are learning their indigenous languages. Give us a little bit more context about your day-to-day right now. Yeah, it's really just kind of creating those pathways for people. You know, I've talked about the agency, helping them, you know, feel confident, but also those pathways. So at the University of Alaska Southeast, you know, there is a, a lot of revitalization in the Northwest Coastal Arts and the and the pathways for, you know, language and, and learning that. Um, in my personal work, I'm actually in the process of developing a new bachelor's program in integrative behavior health. It started off as this little endorsement, the certificate of three credits, and it, it did well. And so I made it into an associate and now we're moving on to a bachelor's. So what that's looking like and in terms of the populations that we're serving is that it's it's drawing from lifestyle as medicine and community as medicine. So all those things that help us be well, you know, the connection to others and social connections, our, our physical activity, the way we eat, um, you know, our mindful practices, our connection to the nature and the land, you know, so it's bringing kind of all those things in, but helping people make those changes is hard. You know, it all sounds so great. Yes, we're going to do it, but actually doing it is is more difficult. So what I'm doing with this program is bringing in all the knowledge in the head, but also trying to, you know, stoke that flint of their heart so where they feel hope that it's possible, that this greatest vision I have of myself is very possible, that I can achieve that. And it's very much infused with the hope talk of MI and the skills of MI. It's, it's more than just a skill. It's really this embodiment. Um, of what it, it means. And so this bachelor's I'm developing, it's very integrated. Uh, it's very body, mind, spirit. And I think that it connects to a lot of the people here that I need some some skills. I need some things I can apply in my life right now to you know really become that, that best version of myself. And for everybody, it's different because we all have different backgrounds, but it, it can be applied across a lot of settings. And what rings out from you is that beingness the invitation to be yourself, whatever, whoever that happens to be. And that resonates very powerfully then with Roger's original ideas of person-centered. was that idea of being with someone that Bill and Steve Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what's the difference between doing MI and being MI? You know, it's that, and that, and and for you, it sounds like what you're doing is you're inviting people to, first of all, understand, here's, here's the concepts described in the form of motivational interviewing. But this is not the description that's important. What the description is off that I want you to experience, which is your humanness, your selfness. And as you become more aware of your own selfness, the more you will 
potentially be able to see it in other people and then mm-hmm. as you say light that spark that potentially lights the fire for them they begin to see themselves and it's mm-hmm. in that place that the journey that you're on is back to being yourself you mentioned earlier on that idea of i can change to be myself yeah. and, and each one of us has an idea of who we are trying to be every day we all have an idea of what the best version of us looks like and and it sounds like what what you're discovering with MI and with and with your relationships with the indigenous populations is that that's not for me to decide. Mm-hmm. Who you are is not for me to decide. But what I'm asking for is your permission to come along and be with you as you discover mm-hmm. that. And I guess one of the things that we are conscious of is that you've you've recently just completed the TNT, the training mm-hmm. for new trainers within the motivational viewing network of of trainers, the mental organization, which means you're now going to begin out and spreading the word even further, I guess. And and I, and I wonder, could you tell us a bit about what your hope for that is and what to, how you want to use this new skillfulness and connection that is the Mint Network? Yeah, I'm so grateful to be part of Mint. You know, I think it's it was a goal for a while. So I'm just really so grateful for the opportunity. And I, I do want to bring MI to rural villages, you know, and expose more people to it so that they can learn to have these conversations filled with hope, filled with the spirit to, you know, practice these skills with people and help them really just unleash this fire inside. And so I, I do, I see it going to more of the rural areas where they don't have a lot of, you know, master's level clinicians or there's workforce shortages. You know, it's, it's a big need here. The other thing is that in Alaska, we have twice the national rates of suicide. We're usually number one or number two in the nation for numbers of suicide. So hope really matters. And as a strategy and as an element of life, I do see MI, you know, being really important to kind of reversing some of these metrics that we have. Uh, Miller wrote an article in early you know, 2000s, rediscovering the fire, you know, small interventions and large effects. And I think really what he was talking about was rediscovering the fire inside of all of us, that fire of hope. And so I do see holding workshops or at least helping people, you know, embody this to themselves so they can go out and be those little ripples. You know, when, when you're better, I'm better. When you create, you know, a better home life for your children, it makes my community safer. So it's just kind of like creating these ripples. And I, I think motivational interviewing is one of the best ways to do so. If we really embody the spirit that Miller and Rolnick talked about, and then you know, use that to infuse those skills with that passion. One of my favorite phrases, Latin phrases is dum spiro sparrow, which translates to while I breathe, I hope. And so my hope is that if I'm with people, any culture really, but specifically here in Alaska, if I can maintain that humility and curiosity and at least, you know, introduce them to some of these skills and concepts that I learned when I needed them most, when I was feeling hopeless and burnt out, I think that this is, you know, the way forward to help people with really meaningful change that that matters to them. I had a a student a few semesters ago who came from a long history of just intergenerational trauma, uh, and they really wanted to be a good father. So even though their childhood was filled with abuse and drugs, um, and it impacted them pretty significantly, despite all of this, they carried something really powerful inside, and that was hope. They enrolled in college. They were in therapy. They were trying all of this because they had hope, and they had that agency that they literally could change that family legacy of trauma and abuse and drugs. 
drugs. And I see that possibility with, you know, indigenous people, non-indigenous people, all of us really that there's this hope. And with them, they had a hope I could be a better father and creating new ripples in the lives of their children. And he found the pathway to do so. You know, he went to college, he was going to therapy, he was taking parenting classes. So recovering and changing the legacy of trauma in Alaska, it really will emerge from hope. And I think that that is just beautiful that we, we can do this. It's like a warm hug <laughs> that we can nurture that, you know, motivation needs to be nurtured, but so does hope. And when this happens, it is, it's like a warm glowing hug that embraces people with power to change. Well, we are certainly uh, very thankful to have you as part of our network uh, and are quite excited to learn more about the work that you're doing, the hope that you're offering, and uh, just excited to learn more about you and, and all that you bring. Uh, wondering as we're coming to an end here is uh, a couple of questions that we often ask our guests, one of which being what, and you've already shared a lot of examples of this, so maybe it's an extension of what you already shared or something new, but what do you have coming up on the horizon here that you are, well, I think I have to say it, that you're hopeful for and are looking forward to? I'm really looking forward to doing my first MI workshop. You know, I've been teaching the college students, but I really want to reach those people who may not maybe don't have the confidence they can go to college, you know, really getting them a taster of this um, because I don't think it should be just for college students. It should really be for everybody, this idea. So I'm really excited to offer my first workshop in some of these rural areas where they may have never heard of it and hopefully, you know, give them the teaser where they want to come back for more. So that's, that's something I'm really looking forward to on the horizon. Yeah. Again, it sounds like it's just that finding the rhythm that is already there for them and, and maybe just give them, giving them initially the words to describe what it is is already mm-hmm. true for them. And from that place, that curiosity can go, oh, it's not just me then. And uh, yeah. that that connection begins at that point. And again, that flint, that fire f- mm-hmm. develops. And I just, I love that idea. Hope really matters. I'm going mm-hmm. to be tweeting that out after this meeting. I'm gonna, <laughs> hope really matters. That's all I'm going to say in that tweet. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, particularly mm-hmm. at the time that's in the world right now. And given the enthusiasm, the light that emanates from you, Sarah, I'm no doubt there are going to be people who are going to be curious to ask you questions, either about your practice in Alaska or these concepts and and the manifestation of them in their own worlds. If people have questions or they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach you? My email, uh, sneko, N-I-E-C-K-O, at alaska.edu is probably the best way to contact me. Okay. And we will include that in the, 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 the blurb for the for the episode as well. But Sarah, listen, we are delighted. It's 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 been a fantastic conversation with you and uh, I just wanna thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so much for uh, for sharing this with me and I'm hopeful for all that's to come. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sarah, and, and thank you all for listening.